Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evercatinos, and we're picking up this evening on page 221, and uh, we're currently reading hypothesis number 26, and we're on letter F from Palladius, the second time we've heard from him in this section. And if you remember, the hypothesis is about testing the vocations uh, that are coming to the monastery. Uh, to see that they understand what it is that they are agreeing to voluntarily, what they are giving their lives over to, and the nature of the struggle itself, that they might not have any illusions uh, about the life and the nature of the struggle and what they are committing themselves to, uh, that they would want to enter into it with eyes wide open and realize that setting aside one's own will and willfulness and living a life of obedience, as well as the uh, asceticism of the monastic life itself is not an easy thing. And, uh, but so they have to be in it with both feet uh, because inevitably they're going to be tested uh, and questioned, you know, whether or not they're in the right place or if they made the wrong decision. And so they want to make sure from the beginning when they come into the monastery that they consider well what it is that they're doing and uh, as we saw last week, that some of the tests were quite rigorous. And uh, what's beautiful, though, in the next hypothesis, we'll see uh, that this did not uh, make the monks look for cookie-cutter images of individuals coming into the monastic life, that people from every background, every set of circumstances uh, were entering in. And what they were looking for were the key virtues that would lead to perseverance and not even age. And the last uh, little paragraph of the next hypothesis is from St. Ephraim the Syrian and says not to neglect old men who come to the monastery because they might be vessels of election. And uh, I think in some ways we've moved away from that. Unless you make a decision by a certain age, you're counted out. And uh, and we see here in the early monastic life that some, some people come in the 11th hour uh, that God calls them. And, uh, and so they aren't to be refused. So again, we're picking up on page 221 uh, with letter F. St. Pacomius used to pray constantly that God's will be done in him. After some time, when he was keeping vigil and praying for this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, God's will is for you to serve him and reconcile the human race to God. From now on, welcome to yourself those who approach God in repentance and advise them according to the role that I shall give you. When he had said this, he handed Pacomius a bronze tablet on which the following words had been inscribed. So Pacomius is one of the very early monks, uh, say third century, uh, and uh, counted as the founder of Cenobitic monast uh, monasticism. Uh, so monks who live the common life and live according to a specific role. And, uh, and so he's acknowledged along with St. Anthony as kind of being the renewer of the church at this period of time. Uh, through his life and then the communi many communities uh, that he founded and the many monks that he drew to this way of life. 
You will allow each monk to eat and drink according to his strength. Hinder no one either from fasting or from eating. And trust heavy tasks to those who are stronger and who eat, but light tasks to those who are more ascetic and weaker. Make various cells in the same monastery and let no more than three monks stay in each cell. Let all the brethren eat in the same refectory. Let them not sleep with their bodies stretched out, but let them construct chairs that recline backwards and put bedding on them. This is how they should sleep. So the first recliners <laughs> were invented by Pacomius, or the, uh, invented by the angel, anyways. Uh, and so it's interesting. You know, Pacomius is told here that each person has a different temperament and different strengths. And so within the rule itself, uh, Pacomius is told that uh, some will need more food and some will need less. Some will uh, fast more and even not come to the refectory. And they will eat in their, they were to given, be given a certain amount of bread and salt and water, and they could stay within their cell and, and fast uh, to the extent that they felt that they were able, whereas some needed more food in order to be able to do the work that they were uh, going to do. And the same was true with the prayer life that uh, some felt, some monks actually rebuked Pacomius for this, that uh, the prayer life, although from our perspective, it would seem incredibly rigorous, from the monastic perspective at that time, it was seen as not just moderate, but light. And because it was, it was felt that, you know, those who were very developed in spiritual life and had a strong ascetic spirit didn't need legislation, that they would be able to go beyond what was required of them of the rule. And uh, that the rule was more to be a guide line for for the monks and but not to be something that was over overly strenuous so as to weaken uh, the uh, members of the community that perhaps would not be able to keep a more rigorous role. So there was kind of wisdom and balance in uh, Pacomius's role and that has endured throughout the centuries. If a guest comes from another monastery, that has a different rule, let him not eat or drink with them or go inside the monastery unless he has been found on the road. But as for him who comes to stay permanently, do not accept him into monastic struggle for a period of three years. Let him enter the stadium after three years when he has performed more laborious tasks. Let them wear cotton cows like those of children and let red crosses be sewn on them. Let the monks cover their heads with those cows when they eat, lest one brother should see another chewing. Let them not talk while they eat, and let them not direct their eyes anywhere else than on the table and the platters. The angel prescribed that they should say 12 prayers throughout the day and 12 in the evening, 12 at the night office and three at the ninth hour, and should chant a psalm with each prayer. So when I heard this, I thought, wow, you know, 12 different prayers at all these different times and psalms, psalms with them. So, you know, I think from our perspective and in the course of our day, keeping this role would be quite rigorous. 
But I think as we've, in comparison to what we've read, uh, I think the role that is given here uh, was again, very balanced, uh, but not the, the testing. We see it is rigorous as with everything else that we've read for three years, that they are to be given you know, great labors and tasks on behalf of the community. And uh, some we will hear were given the responsibility uh, for guests coming to the monastery to take care of them uh, during this period of time before they would be drawn into the, the fuller life of the community. And so it's what we would consider a novitiate, a rather lengthy novitiate, but uh, not, nonetheless something along that, that line. When the great Pacomius objected to the angel that these were only a few prayers, the angel said to him, I have prescribed these prayers so that even the little ones should complete them and not get upset. Those who are perfect have no need of legislation in that they are by themselves in their cell. They have dedicated their entire life to attain the vision, theoria of God. I've laid down these requirements for those who do not yet have a quickened mind, so that even if they attend services as disobedient servants, they might there, nonetheless, with fear of the master, make clearly manifest their disposition. And so, you know, those who are un unable through weakness or through disobedience will clearly reveal that to the one who's responsible for them. And this in, you know, the angel's eye is become something that's more important, that they were, are able to receive the experience of those who receive guidance by those who are more experienced and be gently led into a, a more perfect kind of life. After giving these instructions and fulfilling his ministry, the angel departed. There are seven monasteries that maintain this form of monastic life, numbering 7,000 monks engaged in every form of handicraft. From the fruits of their work, these monks administer themselves in a women's monastery beyond the now, in which there are 4,000 sisters. They often provide for the poor and the imprisoned from their excess earnings. And so it's clear that... Uh, Pacomius's obedience and response uh, to this uh, revelation or this call uh, was great. The fruit that it bore was great, that many monks and nuns embraced it, and it bore great fruit for them, and not only for them, but also for the poor and those who are imprisoned. Any thoughts about this story from Pacomius's life? He'll come up many times, so he's a good one to remember and to remember his way of life. From St. Ephraim the Syrian, always one of my favorite writers throughout uh, the Evergatinos. There's a clarity and beauty and a depth to everything that, that he writes. My brothers, if you wish to become a monk, first fix in your mind the thought that you have already departed from this life and regard this world and its glory as a ruined tabernacle. For unless you prepare yourself in this way, you will be unable to live as monks do and conquer the passions and worldly desires which lead men into perdition. 
He does not lie who says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life will lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Know then that the following will befall one who dedicates himself to the Lord. Temptations, afflictions, toil, torpor, nakedness, distress, humiliation, and the like. For in such circumstances, a man's patience is tested, and his desire for God is made manifest. He who wholeheartedly gives himself over to the direction of a superior, according to God, is victorious in all these situations. For God demands from us only a perfect intention, and he himself provides us with the strength and bestows on us victory, as scripture says. He is the defender of all those that hope in him. So, in order not to have any regret about the life chosen, uh, there has to be a kind of clarity about the purpose of life. And as I was reading this, I was thinking of uh, it's, it's a passage from John's gospel where Christ is basically uh, saying the same kind of thing to his disciples, laying out the fact that they are going to be uh, rejected by the world, that they would be hated by the world. And he says, I tell you this ahead of time, that you might not become discouraged when you begin to experience it. And in a similar way, the monks uh, would engage those coming to the monasteries. They wanted them to understand that what they were entering into was no easy thing. It was to imitate the life of Christ in that radical life of obedience, but also of setting aside uh, the things of this world or anything that could draw them into sin. And I think whatever our path is in life, this is good counsel, you know, that certainly, you know, our emotions are, are part of who we are as human beings, and we're often attracted to a certain way of life, and often that is how God initially will draw us, uh, fill us with a kind of desire and for a particular way of life. Uh, but this desire has to be put to the test, and we have to look at it with a kind of clarity that any path that we take as a Christian is going to have its particular cross, its particular kind of struggle. And we have to be prepared for that in order that uh, we might be able to persevere to the end. Uh, in fact, we hear this in scripture, make sure your endurance carries you all the way. And in order for that to take place within uh, the monastic life, not only this clarity of purpose, but hope in God, uh, and the power of his grace. I have told you these things in advance, in case after you enter the monastic life and encounter these difficulties, you have regrets and say, I did not know that such things would happen to me. Behold, you have already been made aware of what you are going to encounter so that you may strengthen your thoughts in advance. For the toil comes not in laying the foundation, but in completing the building. The higher the building becomes, the more toil it provides for the builder until the work is finished. Hear the saving voice that says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, 
whether he hath have sufficient to finish it. Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. The warfare of soldiers is brief, but that of the monk lasts until he departs to the Lord. So again, we see how deeply rooted the fathers were in the scriptures, that all of this is, uh, is from the gospel and from the words of Christ himself uh, to count the cost and uh, to determine whether or not you're going to be able to finish the work. And I thought it was interesting here, just this little image, the toil in laying the foundation is not the greater burden that uh, the greater burden comes much further along in the construction, that persevering to the end really requires a kind of stamina and that one does not lose one's focus uh, and, either, and either let off in building uh, altogether what one has set out to build or not be able to do it because one grows faint of heart and uh, and so simply simply quits. So again, I think it's you know certainly for every Christian, everyone who's called to embrace the gospel, these words speak directly to the heart. That and I don't think it's often uh, proclaimed as strongly as it should be, uh, uh, both from the pulpit, but I think also in our formation in general that to be a Christian means to you know, look at our life in a particular way, to say yes to a specific path that is unlike anything else within this world, and that has specific demands that it's going to make on us, that we're going to require everything from us, but also promises everything to us. And we have to be very clear about this in order that we might be able to hold fast. Anthony. I think the devils attack and discourage in precisely those areas they perceive we are intended to grow holy. It is a weariness and it shows how maliciously nasty the devils are. I agree. You know, I think, you know, as we make our way along the spiritual path, that they can see the areas where we struggle and where we grumble. And this often comes up in these hypotheses to avoid grumbling in particular uh, about our, our way of life. Not only uh, will that lead to our exodus from the monastery, uh, but uh, it also leads, I think, to what you describe here, that the evil one will focus upon those things that we find most difficult. And so we'll begin to attack us there. The one that we want to bring that struggle to uh, would be the one who guides us in the spiritual life. Again, one who has a kind of experiential knowledge with uh, these kinds of trials. And so not to grumble to oneself or to one's fellow monks, but to, to one's master, novice master, or to the abbot himself. Any other thoughts or comments so far? For this reason, you must begin your work with all seriousness, patience, and vigilance. If you attempt, my beloved, to slay a lion 
Be careful to hold him down firmly, lest he crush your bones like a vessel of clay. And if you throw yourself into the sea and do not dissuade, do not do not be dissuaded until you emerge on dry land, lest you sink to the bottom like a stone. Today, then, when you are at the threshold of the contest, do not say, I will endure everything, yet seek tomorrow to be excused from your task. For the angels of God stand beside us invisibly and hear everything that proceeds from our lips. See, my beloved, that no one forces you but that you join the battle voluntarily and truly, and hereafter do not deny your promises to God, for he shall destroy all them that speak falsehood. So, to speak the truth about what it is that we desire. Uh, so not only to have a kind of clarity about our intent, but not to make false promises to ourselves or to God about the, the nature of our commitment. And again, I don't, I don't think we do ourselves or certainly others favors, you know, whether it's parents with their children or priests from the pulpit or uh, religious superiors or novice masters with those in their charge uh, by, by not making this clear. In fact, I think in some measure, it's in making the challenge clear you know, the call to arms and that is realistic, you know, that it is a spiritual battle is something that gives rise in the hearts of individuals to take seriously their own life and what they are committing themselves to. And I think so often, uh, you know, the focus is upon religious experience and fostering a kind of religious experience or, or the emotions tied to it or the evaluation of those coming in to the monastic life or, or into the priesthood will focus on gifts, talents, and things such as that. And uh, I reread the you know, priestly program for formation because uh, I'm on now the formation team at the seminary. And so I hadn't read it in years, but it's interesting that I counted twice that the word ascetic life was used within, within the whole prospect of formation. So much of it was on this other kind of evaluation, which is important, you know, human formation, uh, psychological examination, uh, personal health, uh, you know, emotional maturity, all these things which are important. But uh, nothing along these lines in the sense of the desire of the individual, uh, the intent that they have on embracing the ascetical life. Uh, it's in there, but the language has become so softened, or I don't know how one might put it, uh, but lacking the kind of stark clarity that we have here in these readings, that it's not, uh, a Christian is not simply entering into a vocation like a particular job uh, or any particular job that's going to be challenging or even that of a, uh, a soldier in the military, even though that would be a closer image. 
But the kind of battle that we are engaged in is until the moment of death. And uh, we and we fight against principalities and powers, as we hear at the end of this paragraph, that the angels listen to each word that we express. And so very much like the icon over my, what would be from your perspective, my left or right shoulder, you know, the uh, ladder of divine ascent, we see the angels encouraging the monks as they make the ascent up the ladder, but also the demons pulling them off, each in accord with the particular passion that they struggle with. And it's a very difficult image to look at, but I feel in some ways it, it captures more honestly the nature, not just of the monastic struggle, but the struggle of the spiritual life as a whole, the battle with the the the, the uh, vices and the struggle to grow in virtue. And, you know, one of the things that uh, John says at the very end of the book is ascend brothers, ascend eagerly. You know, that we are to make our ascent with full desire of the heart and with the clarity about what we what we are longing for. So understanding what we're promised, but also understanding what's being asked of us is essential in the spiritual life as a whole. Okay, any comments, questions? Okay, next paragraph. Oh, Bridget McGinley. How does one recharge after endless warfare? How do we know if it is temptation from the evil one or a trial from God? Uh, good question. And, you know, I think this is why such emphasis is placed upon uh, being placed under the charge of a novice master and why one enters into this period of testing uh, in the life for three years, sometimes longer, and that one wouldn't trust, as we will hear further on in the reading, in one's own judgment about these things. And so one doesn't know, I think early on in the spiritual life, whether something is just from fatigue or if it's a temptation from the evil one, if it's a particular trial. And so again, we seek to lay out our thoughts before one who has charge and care of us in the spiritual life. Uh, how does one recharge in this endless warfare? It's prayer alone and the sacramental life. It's what God gives us. And uh, and I think that's why it's said in the previous, I think it was the previous paragraph of holding fast to what God gives, that uh, the moment that we begin to rely upon our own strength is when we fall from, as it were, from the ladder. Uh, when we take our eyes off of Christ and even focus too much upon the nature of the warfare or those who are attacking us, the more we keep our focus upon Christ and what he holds out before us, the more vigorously that we, we can climb, as it were. And so the true recharging comes from him alone. And this is why they, you know, perfection of the virtues, perfection in the spiritual life, all comes through prayer. And if we were to look at the spiritual life, prayer is the, the most important thing. 
And it's the acknowledgement of our own poverty outside of that relationship with God, but also the means for our perseverance. So above all things in this world that we do, this is what we would want, be, want to be most attentive to in terms of creating a role and holding fast to it. Okay. My beloved, if you make a good beginning, you will also conclude your old age in a pleasing manner. And you will be as a lamp that enlightens many on the path of the Lord. Lay a strong foundation then so that your work may be exalted. If you come to the monastic life from the vanity of, of life in the world, where you had a great reputation, keep yourself from the demon of haughtiness, lest you be dominated by him and brought down into perdition. This is no shame for you if you are in obedience in the Lord and do with your own hands what is good. For this distress and this affliction, which you endure for the Lord's sake, will become for you a cause of eternal life. What else am I to say? For just as the one who exchanges a drachma for 10,000 gold talents is benefited, such also is every difficulty of the monastic life in relation to the glory that is to be revealed to those who struggle and labor. One offers a small amount then and receives a large one in return. And so again, we see the rootedness within the scripture. And in particular, this is reminiscent of Paul, you know, I count the sufferings of this world as nothing in, in, in comparison to the promises of, of life in Christ. That Paul was able to come to see you know, all that he endured, and he endured a lot as being nothing in comparison to what was being held out to him, that he was willing to endure all because he knew all had been promised to him. And in comparison to what he had to suffer, it was as, as nothing. And, you know, this isn't something I think we can simply tell ourselves in our mind, you know, that we're, we're going to think this and think it hard enough that, uh, that somehow we'll make ourselves believe it. Part of it is by engaging in the struggle Again, you know, it's an experiential knowledge, our willingness to enter into the battle and to cry out to Christ for the grace and the strength that we need. It's our perseverance in that that teaches us uh, the presence of God and that we aren't alone in the struggle and shows us also the worth of engaging in it fully. If the abbot hands you over to some brother to be subject to him, do not say in your mind, I am a son of great and illustrious parents, while he is descended from obscure and disreputable beggars, or perhaps from slaves, or he has no knowledge of worldly wisdom, whereas I do, or how can I be subject to him? If I do this, it will be an affront to me. Do not entertain such thoughts, my beloved, for you have not thought prudently about this. Indeed, he who thinks thus has not yet put off the old man, which is corrupted by deceptive desires. But as for us, my beloved, since we have been handed over by God to brothers of like soul for slavery, 
let us endure so that we may be granted the freedom of the righteous, taking into account the master of all, who though rich became poor for our sake, so that by his poverty we might become rich. He was called a Samaritan and a demoniac so that he might correct our thoughtlessness. Place your neck under his good yoke then, without shame, that you might find rest for your soul. Hear a parable about this. So the freedom of righteousness is what is being held out to us. Whereas uh, in terms of the world, it seems like slavery. We're letting go of a false kind of freedom. The freedom to simply embrace what all of our appetites and desires uh, would lead us to. Uh, the, the freedom to follow our will and do whatever we want uh, at any moment. And the monks did this in a radical way. Uh, willingness to set everything aside, past education, uh, the reputation of one's family, all of that becomes meaningless in this spiritual pursuit. What does the worldly wisdom or one's education have to do with one's purity of heart? and whether one is truly seeking the kingdom or desiring God above all, all things. The one who has the you know, poorest background and the least education might have a greater desire for God and might have a greater, uh, greater share in the wisdom of the kingdom than the one who thinks himself or herself to be wise in the ways of the world. Any thoughts or comments? So, a parable from Ephraim. Two athletes went simultaneously to contend against their opponents. One of these was clad in a shining garment and the other in a poor one. They both took off what they were wearing and entered the stadium naked. Now, do you imagine that the one who took off the bright garment brought it out again at the time of the contest, thinking that it might help him against his adversary? Or did he not rather dismiss it as something that contributed nothing to the contest, displaying his courage and skill and vigor against his opponent? So it is with you. Do not think about what you have left behind. For each man has let go of what he had and put off the old man so that he might put on the new. But lay hold of humility, knowing that you entered the contest naked like the other athletes, and that it is written, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Do not be puffed up about worldly wisdom, for the wisdom of the world, says the apostle, is foolishness with God. And again, if any man among you wishes to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. So again, living icons, I think, of, of the gospel, uh, they really make the, the writings of the scriptures and of Paul, of the gospels and of Paul come very much alive for us, that entering into the contest we clad ourselves in the same way that the Lord did, who emptied himself completely uh, and 
enters in, enters into the battle on our behalf. And so we must clothe ourselves with one thing, and that is, is humility. And so we enter into the this battle, as it were, naked. And we see this in Christ sending out of the apostles early on, you know, that they take nothing with them. And I think part of this was, again, to lead them to trust not in themselves or what they had, but rather wholly in the grace of God and in his providence. And it's a difficult thing. It's, you know, being sent out into the world among wolves, like sheep among wolves. And, uh, and we have to be prepared uh, for that experience. And, you know, this is challenging for us to read because I think if we set aside the idea that this is only for monastics and we begin to see that, you know, our call to holiness asks us not to cling to the, the things of this world that provide for identity, not just that provide for our well-being or the well-being of a family, but the things that we cling to that establish our identity in the world or in our own minds. And, uh, you know, these often have no value. And I think so often we are suspicious of them ourselves, or we even know that. And yet it can be a fearful thing to allow ourselves and, and purposely strip ourselves naked as it were to enter into the battle. So to let go of all the crutches that we take hold of on an emotional and spiritual level to make us feel peaceful living in this world. And it is the peace of the world that Christ never promised us. It's the peace of the kingdom. And again, you know, I think we are teaching a different gospel when we teach a prosperity gospel or when uh, we embrace it ourselves, you know, a path that uh, offers a kind of security to us where we keep our faith to ourselves or we go along with the crowd so as not to seem different, uh, not to stick out, not to look peculiar or look the fool. And not only the eyes of the world in an abstract way, but even among family and friends, you know, a willingness to, you know, bear witness to our love for Christ in this kind of way. Anthony. In Syria, St. Ephraim's and Isaac's home, the consecrated life was not necessarily just for the unmarried, but they also lived in or among larger communities that contain families or singles not taking vows? Does Ephraim ever distinguish whether his advice is for the cloistered or for people who live in a non-vowed non -vowed communities around the monastics? Uh, not in this text, as far as I know. Uh, we might encounter it somewhere along the way, but I'm glad you draw attention to that because so often within these early, uh, monastic communities, there weren't vows. And, you know, and all these early monks going out into the desert, their desire was for Christ and to live for him. You know, that they weren't uh, segmenting themselves off or the way that, you know, they looked at themselves and even the world looked at them wasn't so uh, neatly uh, defined as it has come to be over the course of the centuries. Uh, 
you know, where there's particular legislation about who fits into this particular way of life. And I understand the need and the purpose of that, but I think in some ways it strips us from the sense of the universal call to holiness. And what you describe here, that many would embrace this level of consecration in any stage, station of life that they were living in out of their desire for Christ and out of their desire for holiness. And uh, again, you know, I mentioned in the beginning of the group about how St. Ephraim at the very end of the next uh, hypothesis will, uh, he draws old people into this picture that whenever a person comes to that level of conversion, you know, we, it shouldn't be asked, you know, or he shouldn't be told you're too old for this. You know, the spirit moves where it wills and when it wills. And who are we to, to say that somebody, you know, in their 60s, 70s or 80s might not be called to live, live that life. And, uh, and again, you know, I think this, it always speaks to me about, again, the value of reading the fathers because they enliven, I think, this desire within us as well, not necessarily, not to become monastics or to go off to the desert, but to have that same kind of desire for the Lord within our hearts. Denise and then Ambrose. Denise, how important is it to have a mentor in the spiritual life he talks of? And how do you find one to help you navigate the life? What would you look for? Well, we've talked about this many times before about the challenges in our day to find someone who is a spiritual guide or mentor uh, while also acknowledging though that we live in a time when we have great access to the fathers where we can go to them ourselves and take them as our guides. Uh, I think we, we do have uh, the confessional, certainly where we can receive guidance and also the grace that we need to live the life. But uh, again, we have the scriptures you know, accessible to us. And now we have more of the Father's writings accessible to us than ever. And so we have them at our fingertips if we're willing uh, to labor in this way. You know, our age has its own kind of asceticism, what's required of us. And we live in a very difficult time because it's, you know, not an age of Christendom, uh, but really almost an apostolic age, again, you know, where one has to be able, uh, you know, where, you know, those living and truly living the gospel might be a poor, smaller, weaker in the world kind of community, but nonetheless more teachable, more hungry for the Lord and desirous of what he offers. And, uh, you know, so I think it's that desire of the Lord that we want to take hold of, take hold of the fathers, the scriptures and the sacramental life. Now, it is a great thing to be able to have someone who can guide, guide us. You know, I've benefited myself over the years, and I've only had two uh, 
and the, and I've been fortunate they've both been exceptional. So it's worth the time to make that search and to find someone who has great experience in the life and has entered into the battle for, for many years. Ambrose Little. One thing I find challenging is the counsel given complete abasement because that is not acceptable in the world for those who must put themselves forward as competent in their chosen profession. It's not that we can't practice humility at all, but it is a balancing act between reassuring those who pay us that we actually do know things and are actually good at doing what we are asking to be paid for. And at the same time, doing our best to practice humility in the eyes of God and be open to humiliation as is counseled in these readings, much less to seek that out. It is doubly hard when you need to get a new job, promotion, raise, get a new client, etc. You have to put forward your best foot and sell yourself. I can see why they also counsel leaving the world entirely to achieve this perfection. Yes, and you know, I think that's one of the reasons that they did, you know, that they removed themselves, not only from having to deal with that, but also so many of the other things within this world that would give rise to the passions. That when you enter into the desert, you know, your senses are not going to be constantly bombarded by everything in the world that would uh, enliven the passions. Uh, but I think there's a difference between and your question's a great one, because there is legitimate ambition, you know, in the sense of wanting to see the fruit of one's work. And so if you've worked hard all of your life and you've studied and you're providing for your family, uh, that having a legitimate ambition in the sense of wanting to do well in your work and have that work be appreciated uh, is not a lack of humility. It's not haughtiness. It's not like one runs around the office, uh, you know, walking quickly like you're a man of purpose and telling everybody how uh, indispensable you are for the company. But I think, you know, one can be legitimately proud of the work that one does and taking pride in it in the sense that wanting to do it well and being able to communicate that, especially as you said, of looking for a promotion, of being able to put oneself forward as saying, I, I want this job and I think I'm the best candidate for that. Uh, there's a difference between that and I think what we find uh, so often within the world, you know, a willingness to climb over top of people in a ruthless way to gain position and power. And we can do that in companies with jobs, but we can also do that in all kinds of different relationships, you know, seeking emotional power in order to kind of control everybody and manage everybody around us. And, uh, and in a prideful way, putting oneself forward as knowing it all. And, you know, this is where I think it would apply what the fathers say here would apply most to us, you know, in our day to day life, these are the ways that we're going to be tempted, you know, to set aside our identity and dignity 
as Christian men and women to pursue those earthly goals and uh, where we would be willing to diminish somebody else in the office, for example, and their gifts and abilities in order to get what we want. And the Christian might have to forgo that upward mobility because he's not willing to play that game, not willing to enter into that and sacrifice what is most important to him. And so, you know, I think that's where the Christian in our day and age, you know, might not be the one who climbs to the top of the ladder because so much often has to be sacrificed in terms of that identity as a humble servant of Christ and servant of others, you know, is, is set aside. Any other thoughts or comments? One new message here. Oh, on the note of finding spiritual guidance, these meetings, the Evercatinos and Clamacus, are very good for ongoing and life-living guidance with the fathers. I think so, too. You know, I, I could do this every night of the week if you'd allow me, and if I felt anyone would come, uh, because I find it enriching. I come away from every one of these groups uh, energized uh because of what we read here and how we read it and people's comments and questions about it it makes it come alive and so it's like uh it is like spiritual guidance and i think we're you know sitting at the well and we're drinking deeply uh every time we gather for one of the one of these groups and uh and, and I, I think we, you know, by doing it slowly, I think we aren't, I think what we avoid is approaching it in a consumerist fashion. You know, the reading it just to say, gee, I read four volumes of the Evergatinos. Uh, you know, that I think there is a desire on the part of everybody, at least I would think there would be, if you're gonna read three or four paragraphs a night uh, and put up with that, uh, that there is a greater desire to interiorize it. And, uh, you know, it's funny, I've mentioned this before in groups that uh, Goodreads, you know, the, that website Goodreads where you uh, track all the books that you read and you can share that with others and make comments on it and recommendations. And I remember being on there once and I had put up Cassian's conferences and, uh, and, but I saw somebody else that was reading it too. And one of their comments was that they were telling somebody else that they found podcasts online and they mentioned, mentioned me and the group. And they said, and I first started listening to them. And in the beginning, they were painfully slow and almost to the point of not being able to stand it. And, but as I went along with it, I began to see that there was kind of wisdom to it, that it did allow me to read it in a different way. And uh, was that me, Rachel? No, I don't think so. <laughs> Could have been you. And I'll have to go back and search it down now that you asked that question. But, you know, it's, I think if we are able to do this, and read it in the way that the fathers tell us to read it, not as dilettantes, but as those who have a true desire for God 
and a longing for him. And where we are sitting at the feet of the fathers is where it's going to bear great, great fruit for us. Anthony, going to these groups is like the young monk, John the Dwarf, instructed to wash a pot in oil multiple times. And then he saw the value of the continued washing in oil. The pot was gradually cleaned, right? By immersing ourselves over and over in the fathers, that there is something that is, is purifying as well as nourishing about that. And there's something that reveals what is going on in our hearts too, as we revolve around even some of the same subjects from different perspectives, it forces us also to revolve around what is going on in our hearts, the kinds of thoughts that we have, what we do in our day-to-day -day life and to think about them, but also to see them from multiple perspectives, to see our own life from multiple perspectives. And it gives us a greater clarity. Now, are we really pursuing Christ? and seeking to live the gospel? Or are we, have we created a godly life, an image of godly life uh, that we are fulfilling, but again, as something of our own making? All right. Does anybody know where we left off? Is it the last little paragraph there? Nobody's going to help me here. <laughs> Come on, you guys. So forget your former way of life. Oh. Uh, okay. Yes, we, we did the story of the, yes, we did the story of the parable that Ephraim gave us. So forget your former way of life in order that you might boldly ask God to forgive your previous sins. After you've cast off your old ways, and humbled your thoughts, gather unfailing wealth through serving your brothers and bearing spiritual fruits. If you are removing dirt from the inner courts of the monastery, hasten to remove worldly desires from the inner man. If you are cleaning the ashes from the kitchen, remember the prophet who says, for I've eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. So, you know, all of their work within the monastery, the obedience that they embrace is meant to be looked at in a prayerful fashion and connected to the, the reason for their embracing the life that they are. So their labors aren't meaningless, no matter how simple they are. And Ephraim shows us here exactly how one does it, you know, to be able to you know, think about sweeping the dirt out of the monastery to seeking that inner purity of heart and to be able to take up that task uh, with, the, with that desire in mind. When you see perishable fire, think of the eternal flame, which is going to consume sinners and weep for the sins you have committed. Pursue whatever you pursue with humility and good intention and you will reap the greatest benefit and draw the grace of God to yourself. For the Lord, says Solomon, resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. For you labor a great deal. Keep in mind 
those who are tormented in exile, in mines, and in bitter slavery, and subject yourself in the Lord to the habit. For the slavery which you endure is not for men, but for the Lord, who having suffered dishonor or having toiled for the sake of an earthly king, does not consider insult rather as honor and toil as respite. If we do not likewise choose to submit to dishonor and toil for the Lord, why do we leave the world? So, you know, by having this kind of clarity that there are all of those within the world that experience a kind of exile, isolation, because of the circumstances of life, and uh, where it gives them no, certainly, worldly benefit, and not necessarily any spiritual benefit, but you are embracing this kind of slavery in order that it might bring you to the freedom of Christ. You're placing yourself under the master's care uh, in order that he might lift you up uh, to the everlasting life of the kingdom. Why enslave ourselves to the things of this world that promise nothing that will end in ashes when we can enslave ourselves to the one who desires to give us everything, to give us the fullness of life? And so why consider any of those things dishonor when they happen to us or when somebody dishonors us in some way or when even when you know, our, li our life and health begins to fail us? You know, none of those things should cloud out for us the vision of Christ who promises us the, the fullness of life. My beloved, who is worthy and blessed to suffer for him? If you stand firm for his sake, know that you offer a small amount and receive a large amount in return. We need patience, therefore, so that by doing God's will, we may attain to what he promised. For he said, he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. If those who have abandoned brilliant prospects in the world must become humble, how much more must those who come from a pitiful and toilsome life to the monastic life abase themselves and never think proud thoughts? Even if they are honored above the rest, they must display meekness and humility, recalling and thinking continuously of the benefits of the Lord, for what kind of affliction in this life he rescued them, lest distracted in their minds and forgetting their former dishonor, they become puffed up and hear as those ungrateful to their benefactor what is said in the psalm, that man being in honor understood not. He is compared to the senseless cattle and has become like unto them. So, you know, if you are nothing in the world, why come to a monastery and then puff yourself up as if you are something? You're coming there to humble yourself. Why then take upon yourself again the illusion of having value outside of that relationship with God or receiving it from any other place than God? And finally, therefore, my beloved, let us serve the Lord in great humility all our days, for he raises the beggar from the ground and lifts the hungry from the dung heap, so that after the end of this life, he may grant us the glory of the meek and the humble, for it is written, the Lord recompenses 
with them that deal exceedingly proudly, exceedingly, exceeding proudly. I'm sorry, sometimes these uh, sentences are, I'm going to do that one more time. The Lord recompenseth them that deal exceeding proudly. That still doesn't seem to make sense to me, but we'll go with it. Anyways, <laughs> uh, so uh, Ephraim, if you have the chance to read Ephraim's other writings, it's time well spent. Uh, just beautiful. And in these few paragraphs, I think he captures for us what all the rest of the hypothesis does about why it is that we embrace this life to consider well who we are, what we're called to, what is promised to us. And it's that clarity that we want to guide our path forward. It has to be clear for us because sometimes life becomes so dark or so difficult that if we lose sight of this uh, and, uh, or let it slip through our, our fingers, then we can become lost in that darkness. Often it's that clarity that gives us the, one, the light that we need to take just one step forward for another day. Okay. Any final comments or questions? Okay, so that brings us to 8.30. Anthony writes, these are religious people who are not professionals. I like that. It feels good to learn from them. Absolutely. Right. Again, because sometimes being a professional, you know, doesn't mean much. And certainly being a professional religious doesn't promise, you know, that one is living the life. So before we end this evening with our final prayer, I want to thank in particular Ren. Uh, she did a lot of work over these past months uh, while uh, getting a new place to live and moving and also starting a new job. But she put together, I don't know if you saw on social media today, the new website for Philokalia Ministries. It's philokaliaministries.org. And it has everything uh, gathered together on one site. So access to all the podcasts, all the City of Desert uh, episodes, uh, but also all the documents uh, that we'll, we are going to put up over time. And we're also going to put up a reading list, uh, a little annotated bibliography and the value of certain, certain works. So all this now is gathered in one place. And so thank you, Ren for all of your hard work and the hard work over the years. And so uh, we'll thank her in particular, remember her in our prayers this evening. And as we pray the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.